Coming up on the How Did You podcast today is Dr. Chris Feeks, a published computer scientist who has also been a university lecturer. Chris, how did you get into your kind of path of academia? Um, it was a really convoluted story. So how long's your podcast? I kind of didn't realise I wanted to be an academic or have any interest in it until about two years before I became one. But the, I guess the groundwork started a lot earlier than that. I just didn't realise it. So kind of straight out of school, I did an apprenticeship at a software engineering company. Um, and I kind of got made redundant. And I just lolled around doing nothing for ages because I hadn't finished my apprenticeship and no one wanted to take on like an almost qualified apprentice. So... I was just doing any old crappy job, call centre, security guard, HMV, Christmas shop assistant type stuff. But in the background, I was like always in bands and stuff like that and involved in music. And around the time MySpace launched and you could kind of put your songs. Yeah, I can see you laughing. I'm that old, right? Um, and you could like put your songs online and all the rest of it. The band I was in, we were like, oh, wow, this is amazing. So we started making these kind of crappy recordings in a flat above a post office initially um, and putting them on MySpace. And there weren't really any like metal bands and stuff, which is what we were doing on there. Um, and at that point, because of streaming and kind of um, Napster downloading and stuff, the whole record industry was really against putting music online. So there was no Metallica, there was no metal there were no punk bands they were all dead against having any music online so if you wanted to listen to metal we were literally one of the first metal bands on myspace and we just got really popular by virtue of the fact that we stood alone <laughs> so we kind of became an internet band by default and started getting gigs and getting paid okay money for them and stuff and we decided to rent these rooms in a sort of a musician's space that I'm not going to name in Leicester. Um, so we rented these two rooms that we were supposed to be just using for rehearsals and kind of without the building owner's knowledge started a recording studio in them <laughs> and were kind of recording local bands that were interested in the recordings we've made of ourselves and stuff. And just kind of my interest in audio kind of blossomed from there. But I really wanted to know more about how to run a recording studio because we didn't have a clue. We were making it up as we went along and then just like asking sound engineers that we knew what to do and also begging equipment from them. Like nearly all of our equipment was broken stuff that we'd gotten off of someone and then repaired. So like a desk that had half the channels screwed, you know, only use half of them. Microphones that had like weird fuzzy noises and stuff in them. So you couldn't really use them on anything that mattered too much. So I really wanted to actually like know what I was doing properly. And I went to college to do just, I was going to do a one year course at college in kind of music technology. And then I realized that at that point, everything was transitioning to digital. It kind of already was a bit digital, but in the higher end studios, but everything was going digital. And I was like, huh, I know software engineering and I love audio. And the two things are kind of the same now. I'll go to uni. So I went to uni and carried on studying music technology there. Um, and in my kind of second year, I met an academic called Lorenzo Piccinali, who did a lot of work on audio.
audio systems for people with visual impairment, basically. And he was doing things like virtual reality simulations of road crossing and stuff like that, as well as just general equipment people could carry around with them, assistive technology. And I was like, I'm really actually interested in this because it's kind of a a worthy application of kind of audio and software skills and my dad was visually impaired so it kind of had a personal appeal so I basically just went to him after I graduated and said I want to do a PhD with you and after he did the kind of Buddhist monk tried to put me off three times thing he was like yeah okay come and do a PhD then so I did and then I just didn't leave university for the next 10 years (laughs) just became an academic basically Um, So the pathway in was kind of random, but it started before I realised it. They started sort of asking me to cover some lectures and some labs that were kind of within my area of expertise, I guess you could say, because that's quite a standard thing when you're doing a doctorate. Um, Your supervisor is going to be research active. So sometimes what happens is their research grants effectively buy them out of teaching and someone needs to cover them. And it's relatively common for it to be a PhD student because they're kind of the next person down from that lecturer. So for software based stuff and audio based stuff, um, they started asking me to do some cover. And when it came to the recording studio based stuff, I kind of proved quite popular. So eventually I took over a whole audio recording module um, after maybe about a year and a half of doing bits of cover here and there Um, and then I just sort of widened my teaching really as I went along once I was kind of like I guess air quotes an official lecturer it was just sort of getting asked to do more stuff that was in my field if you like Um, I guess I kind of skipped through what I actually did when we had the recording studio, but we did all kinds of stuff. So I had quite a wide range of experience in audio. So it was kind of appropriate for me to teach it both as an academic and as somebody that had done it for money, you know, and I never worked at the high end of the industry. That's for sure. If you're imagining Abbey Road or Maida Vale, our studio was not that, (laughs) but you know, we did it for money. We did it for a living. So we, kind of by the time I got to DMU I actually knew what I was doing for the most part. You mentioned working with Lorenzo on a lot of different projects is that how you started writing research papers? Yeah yeah so he was my PhD supervisor um, along with somebody called Dylan Menzies Um, and actually I did a lot of research with Lorenzo he kind of mentored me through nearly all of the research actually to be honest he was kind of involved in some way even if it was just saying oh you should do that idea that's a good one um so all the way through until I'd finished my PhD and temporarily left academia most of that was guided by him and again that's pretty normal for if you're going through the academic route of being a a sort of a researcher it's pretty normal for there to be more senior researchers that are kind of your mentors normally you'll be within a research group which I was and any of the kind of experienced researchers in there might pick you up and give you guidance and stuff. If you were to think ahead for the future just quickly, where do you see yourself in a year? So I've just got a job going back into HE. Um, So hopefully that'll go well and I'll still be in HE. Um, In truth, I don't know. I've never been someone that maps their career a million miles ahead because you just don't know what's going to happen. I would just like to be happy. How's that? (laughs) 
I'm a bit of an agent of chaos. I, I suspect a lot of your guests are people that knew their path and were just like, this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to do it. Whereas me, I'm just kind of like, there's an opportunity, I can do it. If you had to name your autobiography something, what would you call it? The first thing that popped into my head. <laughs> the first thing that popped into my head is Bendy Wendy. And I've no idea why. <laughs> like... <laughs> It's not even what I'd call an autobiography. Um, <laughs> I'd call it Dr. Sound. How about that? <laughs> Dr. Chris Feeks, Dr. Sound. Yeah, actually, that's a really bad title. Am I allowed to swear? Of course. Is, oh, okay, that's a really shit title. I should have asked that before we started, because I'm a habitual swearer. So, like, the less I swear, the more stilted I sound. <laughs> You've got to be yourself. Um... Who do you look up to? Is it Lorenzo? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, and then I have some, I guess, people that are outside of my life. I have really lofty heroes like Richard Feynman that was a kind of Nobel Prize winning quantum physicist and stuff like that. Um, but people are re immediately around me. I kind of looked up to anybody that was doing what I was doing better than me, if I'm honest with you, or with more experience than me. So even like your previous guests that you've had on, um, people like Simon and Jamie, while I work with them, um, you know, you can look up to them because of their experience. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would you be remembered for? Um, I don't know. I think being realistic, hopefully there are people out there that I've taught stuff and they will be, they will just remember that I did a good job. <laughs> that would be a nice thing to be remembered for. Yeah. Just being a teacher, hopefully a good one. You, I, you were my student. You tell me what are my chances. <laughs> You'd definitely be remembered for being a great teacher. Um, from what I've spoken to with other students there, they find you as their favourite because they enjoy they enjoyed their lectures with you, they enjoyed your time with you and everything like that. But if you had to speak to your 18-year-old self, what would you tell yourself? Uh, buckle up, it's going to be bumpy, but don't change anything, basically. Um, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I'd say don't change anything, but don't change most things. If... You had to think about all the experiences that you've been through. Is there a particular one that uh, sticks out to you? Is it probably developing this equipment and kind of work that you've done with Lorenzo? Or would it just be something completely different? Maybe not even work or academia related? Um, if I'm honest, it would be something personal. I think that the thing that's kind of driven me forward and made me seize opportunities and stuff was, um, wasn't so much goal directed. It wasn't about where I was going. It was about where I'm coming from and almost like trying to run away from where I came from. Cause I had, um, It fit, I, I don't mind saying this, and you may have to edit some of this, but I don't really know if it's on beat for your podcast, so I can pick something else if you want. But, like, basically, I'm bisexual, and I lived most of my life in the closet and was kind of driven by a need to prove that I was normal 
um, and was doing stuff that normal people did and that I wasn't broken. It was like my self-perception that I was broken. Um, so I was kind of constantly running away from that and burying myself in stuff, burying myself in work and things like a PhD. It's a massive piece of work that you've got to get through, you know. Um, so that was perfect for me because it was just like a multiple year long distraction from the shit I should have been thinking about. Um, so I spent a long time running away from stuff and in a really weird way and I don't endorse it but being in the closet helped me <laughs> to kind of get get a long way but the problem is wherever you go there you are right so you've got to face it one day. It's actually really interesting I'm glad you're able to be yourself now um, instead of having to worry about everything like that you should be proud of yourself because that's quite a major achievement. Um, if you had to think about something that's caught you off guard recently is there anything that has yeah man um so october 9th my dad died of covid um which really was a big shock um and caught me massively off guard i would say and i don't know yeah it's still quite fresh it doesn't quite feel real a lot of the time so i don't really know how that's going to progress how my feelings about that are going to progress but it was a big shock yeah because he's died so late in the pandemic um the hospital actually gave me the option to be there with him at the end um it all happened really suddenly he basically he had covid we knew he did so did my mum they tested positive they it was about a week after that he collapsed in the bathroom at home and my mum thought he'd had a fall because he really didn't seem that ill and he wasn't really telling anybody how ill he felt if he did feel ill. Wow. So she phoned me and was like, oh, I can't pick him up and he's just, he can't get up and she was really upset. So I was like, put him on the phone, spoke to him and he sounded really confused and I couldn't understand what he was saying. So I thought he'd hit his head. So I said, you, you need to call an ambulance. He's hit his head. And I went round to sit with her when they'd taken her away, uh, him away, sorry. And then we got the call after I'd been there a few hours saying, no, it's, it's actually the COVID. His oxygen levels are like dangerously low. And they were so low and it was putting so much strain on his heart that they couldn't sedate him safely to give him sort of an intubated ventilator. So they had to use a kind of pressurized CPAP mask that just like straps to your head and tries to push oxygen rich air into your mouth. And because he was awake, they said, you know, we don't think he will last the weekend and it there is a risk to you if you come in but we do allow it like we'll give you a, a kind of medical grade respirator and a gown so if you want to see him you can so they do actually at the royal infirmary let you in but they're very clear that there's still a risk even though you've got the equipment so i went in and i was terrified like i was really scared i was going to catch it um, and I hated being there, if I'm honest, but like watching the way he died, you know, and you hear people going like, oh, it's like the flu, like maybe for some people it is. But if you end up hospitalized, I've never seen anything like it. Unfortunately, I've had the misfortune of seeing a couple of elderly relatives die, one of a stroke and one of cancer. I'd take either of those over dying of COVID. It just harrowing isn't the word he was suffering so much and i just want people to kind of be aware of that you know if you happen to be unlucky enough to actually get that ill with it it is a really brutal way to die think about your behavior and what you can do to stop that from happening to you or somebody else 
like we all have to live our lives now i agree go out do fun things would it really kill you to wear a mask in a shop you know no it wouldn't it might actually save you or someone else so i just kind of that the only kind of positive i can think of to come out of it is being able to actually tell people what it's like and hopefully them to understand that little minor inconveniences like wearing a mask are actually worth it they really are he was double vaccinated as well by the way yeah he'd, he'd been to cornwall and we think although they don't routinely test for it but we think he may have had the vaccine resistant strain is it new or something like that i don't know there's one strain that's a bit more the vaccine isn't quite as effective against it but he was also quite old i will say that you know if he'd have been younger he'd have probably survived it but well it's an absolute shame that you lost your dad chris but i appreciate you talking about it because it's an insightful story as well as the fact that you like you say it's as sad as it is it's only a mask and a mask saves lives yeah you know a little bit of distance a mask and you can basically live your life as normal apart from that it does it makes me feel quite like i don't know my chest gets tight talking about it you know so if my voice was wavering i guess you would assume it's because i was emotional and i was felt the need to explain that because i get embarrassed by my feelings <laughs> toxic masculinity <laughs> this is going to get really kind of deep and almost I wouldn't, I wouldn't say cynical, but if you had to think back to your biggest failure, um, what is it and how have you learned from that? Um, yeah, it's, it's probably the closet thing, to be honest. Maybe not specifically that, but what happens when you live like that is you're kind of half genuine with a lot of people in a lot of situations and it causes trouble down the line. I mean, there are people that I met while I was in the closet. They knew me and were good friends the whole time. And then I was like, oh, and by the way, and you know, it's probably not a huge deal for most of them. In fact, I don't think it is at all. Um, they're still around. They're still the same. But you just feel like you've wronged a lot of people in your life and actually kind of partly connected to that whole situation a relationship I was in at the time broke down and you know I guess to kind of be dishonest by omission for so long is a big failure really um, and I it's a weird one because a lot of people talk about you know there's a reason why people stay in the closet or go in or whatever and it's not your fault, it's societies and stuff. But when you're the person there, you kind of don't feel that way. Um, even though all that may be true, you still feel like you've done it to yourself and everybody else around you. I can completely understand where you're coming from, but with where you are now, that's a massive improvement, I guess, from where you were. Yeah. So let's change it up if you had to name your dream experience what would it be i'd love to travel in space i really would and not any of this like jeff bezos elon musk 10 minutes outside the atmosphere bollocks i mean proper interstellar travel i'd really love to properly travel in space and i often feel like i wish i'd been born in like 200 years or 300 years where that might actually be possible you know like flying to alpha centauri might be like flying to australia or something 
yeah, it just I'd love it. It's 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 the next frontier of humanity, isn't it? If you had to take three people with you to space, who would you take and why? Somebody that knew how to fly the spaceship. Um <laughs> uh, so I'd probably take my partner. Um I don't know how she'd feel about being dragged into space in a, a spaceship that I'm somewhat responsible for, but she's coming, so that's okay. Um, I'd take my best friend Doc, that's his nickname, I won't out him with a, a proper name, um, but he's a mathematician, so he might be useful on a spaceship, um, but also he's quite funny. And... I feel like I should take somebody really interesting now, but I just don't know who that should be. Why don't you take Lorenzo? Not a bad shout, actually, yeah. If Lorenzo what? wanted to come to space, I'd take Lorenzo. If Lorenzo didn't, I'd take Barack Obama, because that's one of the answers you many give to that sort of question, right? <laughs> Someone that's a, a, further, a further the reach than usual, I guess. Yeah. Um, what did you want to be when you were younger, Chris? So my very first thing that I wanted to be was Indiana Jones. Um, and I really, as a kid, like genuinely, I mean, we're talking like three years old or something, thought it was possible for me to grow up to be Indiana Jones, like not an actor, not an archaeologist, just that. Then when I was a bit older and realised the difference between TV and reality, <laughs> I actually wanted to be a, a pilot. I wanted to be a combat pilot in the Air Force. Um, my Both my granddads were in the Air Force. Neither of them were pilots. One was a gunner and one was an engineer, but I kind of really wanted to do that. And I got really obsessed with planes and just fast machines and, you know. But I had some, like, fainting episodes and stuff as a teenager and problems with hypertension, and it was pretty <laughs> clear from the recruitment office that, I wasn't going to be allowed to fly an aeroplane covered in bombs if I had a history of like blacking out and stuff. So I had to nix that. Um, and then I just didn't want to be anything really, just the standard stuff that people all want to be like, just celebrity or whatever, you know. Um, and then being realistic, eventually two years before I did it, I wanted to be an academic. <laughs> what, what would you be known as a celebrity for? I don't know. I hadn't thought that far ahead. It's one of those bullshit dreams, isn't it? Like, do you want to be a celebrity? Yeah, why not? <laughs> do you want lots know, of money? <laughs> yeah, it would be nice. People say money doesn't make you happy, and it doesn't. But you sure can solve a lot of problems with it. If you had to give a piece of advice, whether it be to someone within the media or just in life as general with the experiences that you've been through, like you've mentioned previously in the podcast, what would it be? Think laterally about what you can do especially if you still haven't decided what you want to do because there's lots of weird pathways into great places and a lot of people i fear miss them because they assume they're not capable of it they don't really think about what the skills and experience they've got really translate into um and doing that paid off for me you know it's preposterous right a musician with a cheap half broken recording studio wants to be an academic that's insane and a computer scientist as well. I probably should have mentioned that. My academic trade is a computer scientist, right? But, you you know, if you've got an interest in something and a skill in it, 
um you can really kind of think outside the box with what you want to do with that you don't have to follow like what seems like the obvious career path for what you've done in the past definitely how did you get into being a computer scientist well i guess the partial apprenticeship at the software engineering place helped um but all of that research that I was doing for my PhD was based in sort of software, virtual reality and stuff like that. So I just kind of got into it through doing it, literally. I mean, my final year project at university in the third year was about simulating um, the size and shape of rooms by sound in virtual reality. So using binaural audio, I can go as technical as you want on that, but I don't know if your audience will care, um, but it is possible. <laughs> and by doing that, I kind of got a bit of a background in how to do computer science type experiments. And that actually got published, which is relatively rare for an undergraduate to publish their research. Um, so it was good, I would say. And yeah, I just wanted to carry on with that. It was interesting to me. It felt like it was kind of on the cutting edge. Um, being a computer scientist, it had more appeal to me than doing like a, a doctorate in musical composition or something, you know. Um, so I did it. <laughs> what is your doctorate in? So it's a field of computer science called human computer interaction. And most people associate that with like building websites, which is part of it, to be fair. But really what human computer interaction or HCI, if you want to be cool, is about is kind of bridging the gap between computers, human physiology and human neurology slash psychology. So it's kind of how do we connect with, communicate with the machines, you know, and get them to do what we want. So things like virtual reality interfaces are a good example, you know, the headsets and stuff of kind of more slightly more recent developments in human computer interaction. Um, the stuff again, sorry to keep bringing him up, but Elon Musk and his whole stick chips in people's brains, that's human computer interaction. I'm not saying it's a good part or a bad part, but it is a part. <laughs> How do you feel about Elon Musk? And obviously you mentioned that you want to go to space. Uh, do you think that is, is the future? Is it like soon or far? I don't know. I think it kind of has to be the future because there's no sign that anyone's going to save this planet, right? So we kind of need to find somewhere else. Otherwise, humanity's doomed. I mean, everything that we are, everything we've ever been and everything we ever will be at the minute is tied to the fate of this planet. And we've kind of shafted it. So we probably need to find a new one and hopefully do better. Um, so yeah, I do. I think it necessarily has to be part of our future. I don't know how long it will kind of take us to colonize another planet or whatever, but I think that that the the attempt to do that is advancing at a pace. I'm really worried that private companies will do it first. I just don't know if we can trust them to have the best interests of humanity at heart. I know Elon Musk is everyone's favourite eco-warrior or whatever he's supposed to be, but at, at the end of the day, he's a man who's accumulated billions and billions of dollars and hasn't really done much for anybody else with them. Is that who you want to be the first person responsible for starting humanity's new home? I would rather see a more altruistic person do it, if I'm honest with you, or a group of people, so that if one of them's bad, the rest can ignore them. <laughs> Space socialism, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Space democratic socialism. 
Do you think it'll be Mars that we go to first? I think that that's a good chance. It's nearby. All the space experts seem keen on it. The moon's a possibility. I read a thing recently that there's enough oxygen trapped in the surface of the moon that if we could release it, it would sustain, I think it was like 100 million people for 10,000 years or something. So, this, uh, you know, I'm not an astrophysicist, but we've got to find somewhere. <laughs> Mars might as well be it, right? <laughs> I think I am actually going to sum it up there. Um, but f for your last question, I would love to know whether you prefer analog or digital audio. Oh, man. I prefer digital. Ooh. It's convenient. It's cheap. You can carry an entire recording studio's worth of equipment around in your computer with you. Um, I think it kind of, it makes, if, you, if we're talking like professional audio production, it makes high quality production accessible to a much wider range of people. Um, and you know something, as somebody who has actually had to edit analog tape, there's a lot to be said for the Command Z. <laughs> You know, being able to like undo editing mistakes in digital format is probably the strongest argument for digital audio I can think of. Just the speed and convenience of it. I think subjectively speaking, a lot of people prefer analog and I get it. There's a warmth to it, all of that kind of electrical, you know, distortion and stuff, the very minor saturation that you get. It sounds nice and warm and a little bit kind of organic, but... I don't know if that for me is worth <laughs> all of the faff of analogues.